What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Active Texan Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Watts, your host, and today we have a special guest with us, Nick Valencia. Nick, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I'm super excited about this. I don't know Nick that well, um, but we're going to get to know him here, and I want to give you a little bit. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, but I want to give you a little bit of an introduction of Nick first, um, kind of starting from where he grew up, but also working up into his professional career just to give everybody an idea of like who we're talking to here. And so Nick was born in El Paso, Texas. I'll let him expound on that a little bit, uh, but went to high school there. He enjoys rock climbing, watching sports and public speaking, which we'll get into in this episode. Um, but then when he uh, finished high school, he went to the University of Texas, Austin, graduated in 2010, and then went on from there. Uh, looks like you went straight into physical therapy school, correct? I took a year in between. I took, okay. uh, I applied one year, didn't get in, and then I, I reapplied. So you went to University of Texas at El Paso, which is your hometown. Yep. So that's pretty hometown. cool to kind of yeah. get back to your hometown and spend the next three years there getting your doctorate in physical therapy. Um, and then it looks like, so in the spring of, mm -hmm. and then you spend a couple of years in Arizona. So yep. you're kind of yep. staying over there in the therapy clinic, right? In Phoenix. Yes. And I spent, you know, I would just go once a week and just kind of watch more than anything and just kind of get my hands on the holds. And I think that gave me a taste of the climbing community as well. And typically climbers are very helpful, you know, very, uh, just, just good people. And they always just want to be able to be helpful. And I think that was nice because it opened up the idea of what it was and people would see me trying something and they would be like, Hey, why don't you try this? Or you'd get watch guys who, you know, were, were climbing at higher levels in skill. And you just go up to me like, Hey, what's, do you have, have you happened to done this one route? And uh, they would just kind of explain it. And the way typically, if you go to a rock climbing gym, you're going to go up to a wall at the bottom. And the tape, if you follow the same color, rock hold, which is essentially synthetic, start to learn the movements that are required based on the type of, you know, hold that you're trying to grab onto. There's different names for those movements, right? Yes. Or positions. Yes, there's, uh, there are. And uh, just to wreck my brain, there is typically so there's more so for the type of, of hold than there is for like the type of movement where if you have something called a jug it's going to look more like a cantaloupe shape and you're going to use the palm of your hand to kind of create friction if you have a crimp you can imagine the the border around your your door the door frame itself and imagine trying to grab the top of the door frame you know it's typically going to be 10 20 millimeters deep so you're trying to pinch the uh, also movements where you'd be pinching so i have my hand on the side right now you'd kind of be grabbing the hold itself uh, and then there's jugs which is where you can kind of stick your entire hand into and trying to use your weight to hold on as well that's that's a good little um we're going to get into this a lot more i want sure, to actually sure. go a different direction first <laughs> yeah absolutely um, we could go that direction but we'll come back that'll kind of set everybody up for what we're going to come back to because um i find you know, climbing very fascinating. So I want to get into that with you a little bit, but also you mentioned, so you went to, you studied psychology, right? When you went to yes. the University of Texas and then you started, you can combine that with the, your pre-physical therapy, all the prerequisites. And then you waited a year and got into PT school. Um, and so when was it that you started realizing this? I mean, when you first got interested, it was more along the lines of neuro. Um, you kind of saw people with strokes and traumatic brain injuries. But then eventually you 
kind of got more into the orthopedic side of things. So what led you into that? Yeah, so in high school, I was actually uh, doing some more for skill and just something to do, the point, not knowing what meditation was, you know, and understanding it now, but he of mine, whose name is Curtis Hartie, he had his, uh, he decided to open his own clinic and that's when I had just met him. So he invited me to go hang out and, and watch and essentially on a good path. And I would go and hang out at the clinic and volunteer and shop, work with his patients. And I realized like, I like this environment. I like the environment he's creating for his patients. And this is something I want to, I want to be able to, to do. And I think that even though I went with the psychology, so knowing I wanted to do physical therapy, I was just, I feel I'm so fascinated with the mind and we think why do we think the way we do and how so combining kind of those I was a little bit of fork in the road where I almost wanted to go full-fledged into the psychology aspect but I still very much enjoy and love the idea of movement and I think that's what's kept me on, on the path for physical therapy have you worked in your career at all with any sports psychologists I have Yes, we've had a couple who've worked in the organization with us. I can't say have spent a significant amount of time, but we do have some in organization and then they're, they're amazing. They're amazing at what they do and they're amazing at uh, being able to help us in helping create, maintain, and just move relationships forward for, with uh, athletes. I think both psychology and physical therapy are two very misunderstood professions by the mm -hmm. general public. Um, and, and may, I mean, of course, psychology, I think it's a little bit more obvious. People think that most people think that they can't benefit from somebody who's a psychologist or even a sports psychologist. Like I'm fine. You know, my mind's fine. In reality, most people could benefit a lot from yeah. um, some kind of, especially in sports, but sports psychology, you look at the highest levels. I think um, they're utilizing a lot more with collegiate and professional athletes, but even here locally um, in Bryan College Station, um, I have a good relationship with a sports psychologist. She works directly with people that are recovering from injuries, trying to get back to their sport. Yeah. I've even talked to her and um, met up with her myself, and it's been tremendously beneficial. And I even kind of misunderstood it at first. But then the more I get into it, I realize both psychology, physical therapy, you know, having my own business, it's very difficult to really explain to someone what physical therapy is. And so, you know, it's, it's someone like you who's you've gone through a few different types of physical therapy with orthopedics, different populations. Now, like, I mean, there's, there's even physical therapy in the professional ranks. I mean, full-time physical therapists that work with them, but that's obviously not the, where I'm getting here is that's obviously not the same kind of physical therapy that you would see somebody having, even though it's still physical therapy, having in an orthopedic clinic that is not a professional athlete or even an athlete at all. <laughs> yeah. And um, to your point about being misunderstood and especially on the psychological side, I think one of the pieces is we don't know what we don't know. And I think sometimes the stigma of things that we don't know will overrule our curiosity to understand it. And I think I, I do see that in the psychological side, like you're saying, I think sometimes to say that you want to speak to somebody is also saying that there's something wrong. And I think that that mm -hmm. stigma is slowly turning in baseball itself, because what they're finding is when you want to be the best at what you do and you want to be able to have every edge and opportunity possible, you can see some of these guys will go through the transformation of understanding their body from a physical standpoint, from a nutritional standpoint, and from a psychological standpoint. And things that some of these guys can do naturally and is 
is phenomenal is their ability to cope through a lot of stress, a lot of failure. You know, the game of baseball was once described to me as a game of failure. And without getting too deep into that, I think, again, to understand that these guys now understand that even though I don't necessarily have anything wrong, somebody could introduce me to a new concept or idea or seed of thought that can help transform you know, what's going on on the mound. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting it off your chest, right? Like if there's just, we, we've started to learn that when you draw stress, whether it's physical stress or mental stress, it comes from the same bucket. And if that stress is coming from working, you know, 10 hours a day, raising two kids, having to put food on the table, and then also trying to work out, and then there's not a lot of sleep going on, and then nutrition's not the best, you start stacking a lot of things in a very uneven way. You think of like the game of Jenga, right? And if these pieces are just not well balanced, then they start to become a little shaky. And I think being able to help take care of that mental psychological part of it is a way to help alleviate some of the stress to make you better at other things. You might sleep better, you might eat better. You know, there's a lot of things that they will help, you know, you progress through. Yeah, I think more and more people are beginning to discover and understand how those, you mentioned four different things kind of fit together. Number one is the psychology or the mental aspect, mm-hmm. physical, which is, you know, we're experts in that with musculoskeletal and movement. Um, that's kind of the physical side. And then you mentioned nutrition and then sleep. So those are really like four pillars of health that it sounds like you incorporate into the way, I mean, the way you treat people, the way you um, take care of your athletes. It's definitely the way I have done it in the last couple of years. Um, now that I have more, of a way to look at someone more holistically and you realize like you said i mean you may have somebody that um is working 10 hours a day they have two kids at home they have to help take care of there there's really not much time for themselves physically and so when all these things start to get out of balance then that's when things come crumbling down <laughs> to your yeah, jenga, right your jenga analogy so um looking at someone as a whole i think and also people better understanding like especially as a physical therapist, like we can, yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but I can help you realize that psychology is a part of what you're experiencing physically. Right. Um, and also I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist. I can help you understand that what you're eating is also affecting you physically. And then of course, sleep, that's even, I mean, we could go down each one of these different pathways and, and talk about them, even though they're not our expertise. Um, you, you realize that's a big part of what helps people the most. Absolutely. And I think that comes down to, I think, somewhat of a approach. And I was introduced to this approach and the idea of like a servant leadership. And sometimes what people come to you wanting and maybe not necessarily what they need. And how do you serve them to be able to give them the best things that they, you know, they truly need. And, you know, you come, somebody comes to you and we've started to, again, glimpse a lot of these with like chronic pain. You see this with chronic pain. Sometimes what is consider the the location of pain may not be the source and the reasoning we see this with a lot of chronic lower back pain where sometimes you know movement is a great start but the idea of understanding what is pain and understanding why do we hurt the way we do and is there really something going on you know there's again this transformation where we used to be very patholanatomical and what that means is your lower back hurts because you have you know a degenerative disc or you have a small hairline fracture or you have, you know, a bulging disc. And we, you know, holistically, I like you, the fact that you're saying that. And I think we're all 
starting to turn on to the idea of the mindfulness aspect, the holistic aspect, and treating people outside of just bones and joints and muscle tissue. And that sometimes can be the difference that I say between having worked in private practice early on versus sports. We don't see a ton of the chronic pain side, but we will run into it with injuries, longer term ligament. You know, it's a long rehab, 12 to 14. Holistic is a great approach. And we, or it sounds like eating or should be shying away. Absolutely. This is, I think, again, that I developed the network, which it sounds like you're doing an awesome job at you know, in your community, you're, you are giving them that professional uh, athlete experience, you know, whether that's a weekend warrior, or again, somebody just working, you know, nine to five, or just trying to, you know, keep, keep a support a family. uh, You can absolutely, I think, ingrain the idea of giving them that the patient experience. And, and so that has to do with that kind of running, you know, we see around us in our community, a professional athlete, even if they do what they do. (laughs) So caring you know i think in front of you as best you can the minor leagues or that mexican baseball what it meant to work with athletes and work with uh, baseball players and he played college baseball and so he had an, a connection uh through the community and seeing a lot of baseball players and that gave me some opportunity to be able to understand one what it meant to kind of get back into overhead athletes and just being introduced to that concept and through that time, you know, he eventually ended up getting an opportunity to work with the Diamondbacks. And then I just left some really big shoes to fill. And when he left, part of the conversation was like, well, who's going to see some of the baseball guys? And they're like, oh, uh, you know, Nick's seen, you know, the more the direct experience working with Ben. So I guess Nick will. I'm like, uh, I guess I am. <laughs> so part of that was just trying to, you know, fill these shoes. And, you know, through a network of also, again, being super fortunate to know the head athletic trainer for the Arizona Diamondbacks and through these relationships, just trying to be as helpful as I can and just trying to understand the game of baseball, you know, that led to an opportunity to work uh, with the Atlanta Braves. So some of it is just being at the right place at the right time, creating that opportunity. And I think a lot of it too, is just wanting to challenge myself to be around people who were very intimidating. These guys knew their stuff really well and, you know, they're very sharp minds and it's a challenge to be able to try and keep up with the knowledge that they have. But it's, I think through that pursuit that I ended up uh, working in, in baseball. What do you do to keep up? Con Ed, continuing education is probably a big piece. So again, the cool thing about being a part of this, this network and understanding being in baseball is, is being a part of a brotherhood in a sense where we are always talking with each other. We form a lot of friendships. You know, I have a really good friend of mine who works uh, with the Brewers and he lives in Phoenix. Uh, some friends that have just kind of worked into different organizations and we're just constantly asking each other, you know, hey, what are you reading? Books is a big one. Just reading as much as I can, uh, whether that's just unrelated to sports in itself, just books, uh, reading articles and the other one's just taking Con Ed courses. So I just signed up for a course on baseball. And it's the pitching mechanics of baseball through on base U. I've also signed up for what may be somewhat a different path, but I think it may be an interesting course through Barcelona, the international, like the soccer team. They have continuing education where you can take uh, eight or nine month injury management in teams, uh, team sports course. So those are the ways that we just constantly just kind of dig through information and just try to relate it back to what we have in front of us. So now you've been with them for a few years and what's, I mean, what is your 
typical day or week like in the off season? And then what does it look like during the season? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I think that's well said because there is a difference between the off season, which we've now dubbed, uh, I've dubbed the non-playing season because there's still the work to be done. You know, there's no off. You're not uh, off. And then for sure. No, right. You know, less, less work, but still, you know, stuff going on and then the, the season, but I'll, I'll start through spring training. I feel like spring training is a really good uh, place to just kind of get the season going. People usually get excited about baseball during spring training. So spring training, we typically show up in the middle of February and then we will work uh, all through March and April. And through that day, we'll show up around 630 in the morning and just have a meeting, get prepared for the players that will be coming in. And then they'll come in, they will typically either get some type of modality, which is, you know, some type of laser, some type of, some type of uh, technology that's going to help prepare them for the day. Then they'll do some soft tissue manual therapy or some kind of stretch. They'll warm their bodies up, go through some movement, and then do baseball activities. And then after they're done with baseball activity, or it's a spring training game, say, you know, a game maybe go on for three to four hours. Spring training is usually be a little quicker. And after they're done with the game, any bumps or bruises or anything that's happened during the game, they may come in and ask or request something. Or if an injury pops up, then we'll, we'll deal with that injury at that time. And we just hang out and support them. And then once they're all done for the day, they go home. We have another meeting. Just kind of, again, going back to the idea of communication, making sure we're on the same page, and then call it a day. We do that through spring training. And then during the regular season, we usually try to show up to the field about six hours before a game. So say the game's at seven, we'll be there around one. And from there, it's very similar in the day. We'll make sure that we are aware of what anything that's gone on the prior day, how are we gonna handle it? Whether it's an injury, you know, if somebody pulls a hamstring and they just did it the night before, like what is the treatment plan for that day? And then also if again, bumps and bruises, if somebody has an achy shoulder or is requesting something from say myself or the other physical therapist, and then they need some strength and conditioning aspects and movement uh, to reinforce the things that we're trying to teach them. We'll have conversations with the strength and conditioning department and just let them know, hey, be careful with, you know, their lower back's been a little achy or they slept wrong the other day, their neck's bothering them. They, you know, we're traveling, we're in a different, uh, we're at a team hotel and maybe their, their neck's just a little cranky from having slept on the pillow the wrong way. And from there, we just, uh, the guys will start to come in. They will have uh, batting practice usually about three-ish hours before, I'm trying to think through this, so the, the, about two-ish hours before, and then they will also play catch, just kind of prepare themselves for the game. And depending on the, the type of player, so you're dealing with a position player, they're gonna be just getting themselves ready as a total body, you know, and a pitcher, depending whether they're the starting pitcher, may start earlier in the day and preparing themselves, or if they're a reliever, somebody who comes in towards the end of the game, you know, the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, your starter is able to go through the first six innings. They usually will start to prepare uh, later in the day. And they'll usually come into the training room for any kind of hands-on activity during the first, second inning of the game. And then from there, as they're leaving, you're now starting to plan for the starter, the person who's gone the first, you know, three to six innings. You're hoping six, seven, eight innings. Uh, will come in and they may have request something from you as well, whether that's again some soft tissue work, maybe some modalities just kind of calm the body down. And then from there, um, that's usually what the day is more or less. Off season changes as a physical therapist for us, we still manage any injury that's occurred during the season at long term. So say you have 
a UCL Tommy John surgery or you have somebody who's longer term uh, post-op, usually will still be coming in and we handle them uh, on a day-to-day basis and the schedule becomes a little more free form. So, you know, at some point you just have a conversation, hey, what time do you want to come in? 10 a.m., you come in at 10, you work for them as long as you need to. The session can go anywhere between an hour to four hours. And we're just trying to give them, again, that holistic approach to making sure they get everything they need. And then also remotely, we just handle any type of administrative uh, work that may come up. And that's about what calendar looks like for you know working in professional sports on a medical staff. I have a couple of questions. Um, yeah, absolutely. One, you said the last thing there, you said one to four hours, like sometimes you're treating somebody for four hours. Is that like with you and the athletic trainer and the strength coach or just you? Just me. Just me. And, and it'll be, again, just me and or if it's the other physical therapist, the other physical therapist. But you also, at that point, because the off-season, what you're trying to do is also make sure that they're, the, the staff as itself has the opportunity to kind of get some R&R. So sometimes early on in certain phases, it may just be the physical therapist. And then later phases, it'll be the physical therapist and the strength conditioning coach. And you're just kind of working collaboratively where there may be guys that are going in who are not injured and they're going through their workout and you just talk to the strength coach say hey what time would you be able to take you know this player and work them through their progression in injury and then you just work in that stance but yeah it could be anywhere between again like one to four hours depending on what we feel is needed at that time and we just take our time you know we have we're the luxury of being able to have a ton of resources around us to make sure that we get everything we can we check every box possible for for these athletes how much are you um are you are you pretty much following certain protocols based on injuries or are you very fluid with the way you help someone kind of work through an injury or how does that typically work in that field i would say both you again have a a great opportunity to be collaborative with the doc so they will hand us protocols and as you know and the protocol is essentially to give you instructions and guidelines, almost a little bit of a recipe of the do's and do nots early in phases to make sure that you're protecting the area that was injured, kind of sticking with the elbow. You know, you want to make sure that you're not overly extending or straightening the elbow or bending the elbow. You know, you also want to make sure you're using certain types of exercises early on. So you will get a step-by-step approach. There's some injuries that say like a hamstring strain, a lot of it is to be very individualized to the player. So again, we have a guideline, we kind of have a roadmap, but when we kind of take a left or when we take a right, or when we kind of maybe travel in a certain direction is to be a lot of it's going to be based on how does the guy look, you know, a hamstring strain. What we've learned a lot is they don't always represent and manifest in the same way. And guys don't recover in the same way. Some guys recover a lot quicker. Some guys can feel the fact that they may have strained something running a base. Maybe, you know, they just hit a grounder to third and they're running to first to try and beat the grounder out and feel something there. And after that initial pain, you know, the next day they feel really good. Or you can have somebody who doesn't really feel like it was a lot going on, but then they have some bruising, you know, some internal bleeding going on. And we just try to meet the players where they're at. And just try to follow the roadmap and try to get them back as quickly as possible. But it will also make you sure that we're not forgetting about the rest of the player. So it, it can be a little bit of both, most definitely. Do you have players that specifically request you? Or is it they just say they need physical therapy or need to see that athletic trainers? Or are they Absolutely. requesting specific people? 
So it can come down to more skill based because of the the opportunities that we have to do certain things. So one of the things that the physical therapist with our organization do a lot of is a dry needling aspect. So if they ask for dry needling in general, we're typically be the person that you get referred to. But it most definitely happens where you form relationships. You know, you're around with these guys six months out of the year and you're with each other 162 games over 182 or 84 days. So you start to form relationships, you start to get to know people. So that you will generally have some kind of relationship that can form and you'll have certain people ask, you know, Hey, you know, do you have time for, you know, X, Y, and Z based on the skills that you have. And sometimes it's also what you were saying earlier. Like if somebody asked me for something that I may not feel like I'm the best in our core group of, of staff who'll be able to do that. I'm like, yeah, I, I can, but I think, you know, so-and-so does this really well. And I think you should, you should work with them and try that out and see what you think. So it is very much a balancing act and some of it's forming relationships. Some of it's uh, skill set based. I think that's really cool because we can, a lot of times um, our ego can kind of get in our way. And so we feel like we are the person to help every single person. And, but the more that um, I kind of started out that way, it's like, I can help everybody. Um, but the more you get into it, you know, eight, 10 years later of doing physical therapy, the more you realize you don't know. Um, yeah. And so you just realize, wow, I can't help everybody. And once you discover that, actually, you can, you end up helping a lot more people because you get them to the right person. Or even when you're um, working with other staff, physical therapists or athletic trainers or um, chiropractors, uh, strength and conditioning specialists, coaches, they all have different, not just personalities, but ways of getting people through things. And sometimes you may just connect better with a person or, or you may just have a specific skill, like a skill like dry needling. Like, I mean, definitely they're going to see you, not anybody else or anybody else that can, can do needling, but, which is the PTs probably, and maybe the athletic trainers. But um, anyway, I think that's really cool that you can. No, that's very well said. That's absolutely exactly what it is, is, and there is, I think some of it is ego early on and that's tough when you want to be really good and you want to be able to help. And I think sometimes help being gets us in the way of understanding how to really help somebody. And um, also I think the way we're educated, you know, as an outpatient physical therapist, rightfully so, are left to a lot of your own devices, you know, and early on not having the opportunity to collaborate a lot the way the athletic trainers get to as they're working through their education and then through early in their careers, there's a ton of collaboration that goes on as an athletic trainer. So I've learned a lot from the athletic trainers that I work with and understanding how to do more of that. And absolutely, it was some growing pains early on and understanding that. But uh, like you say, when you're more mindful of trying to remove the ego and do what's best for the person, you can kind of give them the person, they can work with the best clinician possible to get them better. I, I think that's actually, you mentioned that with athletic training, that's something that probably helped me a lot. I, that was my undergraduate degree Yeah, was athletic training. So you do work with a lot of different people. You learn how to collaborate and realize that, you know, you don't necessarily need to help them with a certain thing. You need to get them to the right person. And then you mix that. That's, that's what helped me get through PT school is having that background. Um, you know, it made PT school a lot easier than someone that probably didn't have that background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you probably, like you said, you probably picked that up a lot quicker because it was the way you were trained to work. And I think that's something that they, again, rightfully so because of the, the fact that we're trying to be leaders in, in, the movement and rehab world but i just don't think we get enough reps collaborating and athletic trainers do uh, you know just again through tradition of educational systems 
You've mentioned a few injuries. What are some of the most common, maybe we can put it in two categories, um, surgically repaired injuries and then non-surgical injuries that you see? Yeah, actually, I was, I was curious to say, uh, I'd love for you to guess. If you could guess the number one uh, most likely injury on a baseball field, I'd be curious to know. I mean, I would say elbow. If you're up for it. Yeah, and, and most people do. You know what it is? It's or shoulder. The, ha the hamstring. Oh, really? Hamstring strain is, uh, there was a really cool article that came out by Chris Camp, C-A-M-P, and him and his group took an analysis. I think it was like from 2011 to 2016. They took all the injuries in the uh, athlete management system that we use for keeping records of the players, and they, they categorized them, and they they look through which injuries are the most occurring and the hamstring injury is the, the most common injury. But right after that is going to be shoulder elbow related, but you also have strains and sprains are going to be um, the most common. And you also have contusion, meaning getting hit by a pitch, right? So pitcher throws ball, you know, either loses it uh, uh, accidentally or quote unquote accidentally, you know, it kind of ends up on a guy's hip or quad. Those are going to be some of the contusions that we deal with. Sprains and strains are probably going to be the biggest ones. And then from there, we could see hamstrings, uh, obliques. So oblique strains in pitchers and in hitters. And mm -hmm. it can be based on just kind of feeling a pull, hearing a pop. Those are, those are some of the injuries that we deal with. And then, of course, shoulders just get worked, you know, whether it's a position player, an outfielder, or a pitcher themselves. Just, there's a lot of maintenance that get, that's involved in just trying to keep somebody able to throw a ball you know, 40, 50, 80, 100 times in a, in a game. I'm glad I asked you that because, I mean, now that you say that, it actually seems pretty obvious that it would be more muscular related injuries because you only hear about the kind of the bigger injuries typically um, from our side of it. You know, in the media, you see injuries that require surgery or like a more major like elbow or shoulder. But um, what about our, is there, so based on that data that y'all have found, um, if that's if that's the most common injury, I would think that they want to do something to reduce that risk. Is there like are the strength coaches taking something in, you know, to try to help reduce that number of injuries and hamstrings and muscles? Yeah, and you know, actually, in speaking in that, so our other physical therapist Pete, he was very forward thinking, and during this this pandemic, you know, we had a, more time on our hands than we typically do with a season, and. Uh, he brought up the idea of creating some sort of framework. So again, we have phenomenal strength coaches and they, we, we got together athletic trainers, strength coaches and physical therapists, and we collaborated on this framework. And what we did is we took the skills that we have, the modalities that we have and the knowledge that we have in house. And then we looked around and found other models as to how to deal with the hamstring strain. And we said, okay, what do, how, how do we handle this? How do, you know, the medical staff for the Atlanta Braves, how do we handle this, this uh, injury? And we, we created a framework from like the moment it happens, what happens at that exact moment to how do, what are we all comfortable agreeing upon? How do we get a guy back? Making sure we can check as many boxes as we can with one, making sure, I think the biggest thing when an injury happens, especially in sports is we can't let it happen again. That's, that's the re-injury aspect is something we do have more control of than the injury itself. We know, I'm sure as you know, there's only so many things that you can do in a prehab perspective that no one really knows the exact recipe for how to prevent injuries. You know, we just haven't mastered that yet. And I don't know if we ever will. It's very complicated. 
But then after that's okay, how do we recover and how does this person rehab and how do we not let it happen again? And there is, we are very methodical with our process in making sure that we can take somebody from that, it ouch hurt, you know, uh, I can't walk in it limping to feeling good to now that the, the mental confidence is there, like making sure their body is resilient enough to avoid it happening again. And it's, it was fun. It was a lot of fun collaborating on this framework and it's, it provided some guidance for us. Um, we had some, some hamstring strains that, you know, that ended up on the injured list, meaning that they were out from actually playing and some that didn't, that were just somewhat more of a very minor, but we were able to make sure that we kept guys healthy and able to, to keep them on the field. That's good to hear that they're able to use that kind of data and then do something about it. That'll eventually trickle down, you know, I think from professional sports into, you know, other, even all the way down to youth sports, I think. Um, because you probably see a lot of this, a lot of similar injuries in youth, um, probably a little bit more overuse injuries in youth baseball. But. Absolutely. And elbows are, are the big ones. And that's, uh, you're right. And I, th I think we can say the trickle down is happening with, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the baseball, but Dr. Andrews, you know, the uh, world renowned surgeon, he developed, I think it's like play smart and through the MLB and Dr. Andrews, they created a, uh, throwing limits for, for younger athletes because they found that Tommy John surgery is happening in the younger and younger populations. And that's scary. You know, it's a surgery that we are much more comfortable with now and the predictability of having somebody return to where, how hard they were throwing or get better is, is we, we know more now, but we know that pitch counts are really important. And we know that it's worth saving a kid's arm over getting them worn out on a weekend tournament. And that's slowly trickling down the system and making people more aware of what does it mean, you know, for a kid to throw 70 pitches in a game to then throw again the next day. Like that's a big no, no. And guys, and you know, leagues and directors of leagues are becoming more aware of and youth sports of how do we keep our future of baseball healthy? Yeah, that's very well said. Um, one thing I want to do before we kind of transition to talking about rock climbing a little bit is what would you say to um, somebody who is either, this can be related to physical therapy or athletic training, a lot of the different people that you work with, that they're in college or maybe they're already in school for physical therapy. Um, how, what, what kind of advice would you give them as far as like getting to that level if that's what they wanna do in professional sports? How, how do they get there? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say early on, I think the 101 is just master the basics. Anatomy is king. You know, the better you know your anatomy, the better, you know, your functional anatomy, the more successful of a foundation you can build upon. And I think after that, it's going to be just trying to network and, and find mentorship. I, uh, ben early on told me something that has just stuck with me. And I've, you know, said it hundreds of times now to anybody willing to listen. And that's the idea that your first two years, you move into professional sports. And then from there, direct message to somebody or on LinkedIn, uh, reach out and just ask them, hey, you know, what can I do? Uh, one of the things that professional organizations are doing now is they have internships and residencies as well. So trying to find out skills is some of the soft skills, you know, to collaborate and just taking a good look at yourself and saying like, is there certain aspects of how I present myself that could be better? And then trying to better those things. Uh, those, I, we, what I've noticed the commonality in professional sports is there's a very much a growth minded mentality so again, all around is from externally, from a technical standpoint and internally as well. Everyone's always trying to be a better person and just try to be better at what they do. So I think, again, if you just kind of master the anatomy, uh, not be afraid to kind of put yourself out there and connect 
I think those would be the two ones. And then the third one is just getting a mentorship or experience as close to professional sports, whether that's high sweets population as possible. That is, that sounds like awesome advice. Hopefully we can get, get a lot of uh, um, upcoming physical therapists to listen to this that are aspiring for that. I'd like to. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you go back and talk to um, your school, UTEP, UTEP, and also even your high school. Um, hearing that as, as if I was at that stage of my career, even in high school, college, or graduate school, it would be, it's nice to hear kind of the path that people have taken and some general things you can do. And the, my biggest takeaway from that was, I think, like you said, with the soft skills of being a good communicator, being able to get along with people. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's really number one over the clinical skills. Of course you have to have those skills. Um, but if you, if you can't communicate, you're not going to be able to work well in a team with a, you know, a team in that kind of sense of, especially in professional sports, working with all kinds of different medical professionals. Yeah. And I, what I've, again, looking back and just having this conversation, I think it's ultimately investing in yourself, right? I mean, you can invest in others, you can invest in other things. I mean, whether you think of that financially or through time, uh, but you can't be afraid to be the only one that believes that it's going to happen, right? If you believe that you want to do something, this is, again, goes down to sports, this goes down to professional uh, development. If you really want to do something and you really believe that that's where you want to go and that's your path, no matter what anybody tells you, then you have to continue to move in that direction. Um, and I think, you know, I going back and speaking with uh, the PT school at UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso, and going to my old high school, I try to go on a yearly basis or be connected with them in some way because I just want to open as many doors and opportunities as possible. And I didn't have this opportunity to have this development early on. And I don't, I want to make sure that this, these doorways kind of create development for others. I think that's a big priority for me to just, I feel like this is a social responsibility, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that like you're saying, I, I wish I would have been told these things early on. And I was also fortunate enough to have some teachers in high school to, to just tell me that to just, you got to figure it out. You know, I was just sometimes a little bit of a, a smart aleck. I probably once a year, I'd get a call home for some reason or another and I had a teacher just kind of pulled me aside one time. And she, the cool thing about this medical program for this high school is you had a lot of retired nurses, dentists, uh, people who had been in the medical profession now working in this high school. And she just, she pulled me aside and like, look, I, I, I get your, you can be clever. And sometimes, you know, you, you think you're cute with your attitude, but you, you have to learn to play the game, you know, and that was probably a big moment for me, a big paradigm shift. So having her, her having had that impact on me is made me feel a responsibility to make sure that I can give that back to others. And just, again, just try to tell them like, Hey, anybody can do this. You know, I in no way feel like I'm, you know, have some skill or some secret talent that got me to where I am. Uh, I feel that anybody can achieve this. It's just a matter of like one, how bad do you want it? And two, just doing, you know, the right things to get you in this, this situation. I, I, I want to be able to open eyes of people to know that as well. Here's a quick note from our sponsor, College Station Physical Therapy and Performance. We help active people in the Brazos Valley recover from injury, return to their active lifestyle, and reach their highest level of performance. Check out our website at collegestationpt.com if you are ready to feel better, move better, and perform better. Now back to the show. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk more about you and your hobby a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. Um, 
feel like we could almost make this two different you know episodes <laughs> sure <laughs> uh, but we'll see we'll see how it goes and so yeah you mentioned rock climbing we talked a lot about you know kind of you mentioned you kind of introed it a little bit but you started when you were 18 um you've continued this hobby so it's something that you obviously love to do um and it's is it more of a sport or a hobby to you now it's I, you know what I, I really feel like sometimes the line gets blurred i think the reason i won't call it a complete sport yet is just because i'm not you know getting paid to do it <laughs> but uh the that's pretty hard to do bro yeah, a rock climber i think <laughs> it is you have to be really good and you uh so it is it's something that you know maybe maybe somewhat more towards the sport aspect because i do revolve a lot of my thinking and how i train and the things I like to do in a weight room around what I want to do on a rock wall. Um, and it's, it's been something that I, I mean, I want to say 14 years now. And it's something that I, I've always picked my profession over my leisure, you know, my hobbies, but it's just always brought me back around. And every time I go out there, I go outside and I get to spend some time on a mountain or on a wall or outdoors uh, around some boulders or something that just hits me in, you know, in a spot, like good for my soul. And uh, it's, it's just something that just grows that, that internal, you know, attraction to climbing and the culture and the community just continues to grow stronger. So it, it does, the line does blur for me on that end. And so what, what do you do different kinds of rock climbing? Yeah, actually. So there are two types that I typically like to do. And one of them is bouldering. In bouldering, you are climbing with no rope, but you're not going as high. And you have these things that my, my mom has deep pillows, but they're essentially crash pads. And what they are, these foldable foam-based uh, pads that are probably anywhere between like four feet to six feet, and you put them on the ground. So if you do fall from the rock, you're usually climbing about 15 to 20 feet at max, and then usually from there you'd be either climbing over the boulder or the rock, or you would just jump down. And the bouldering aspect is more power-based, it's more strength-based, and there are many different versions of bouldering depending on the type of rock that you're on. So being from El Paso, actually, there's this place called the Waco Tanks, uh, Waco with an H, and it's, it means hollow in Spanish. And there's an area out here that's volcanic rock. And I have some buddies that would be able to describe the geography of it, you know, so much better. Or but you just need to tell them to go to your Instagram because you've got a picture on there. Oh, yeah. I just yeah, saw that. <laughs> yeah. We'll put that in the, sh we'll put in the show notes how people can find you and find those pictures. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some videos there where I'm bouldering. And what you use, you can notice the pads are on the ground and I fall a couple of times. There's a video just of me showing, again, failing at uh, this, this one route. And uh, that's, that's the core of the bouldering aspect. The other one is, is sport climbing. In sport climbing, you're going 40, 60, 80, 100 feet up in the air, and you're using a rope, and you're using these things that are called quick draws. And what they are are these two carabiners, which are these metal clips on one edge, and there's something called a dog bone, which is a nylon strap in between the two carabiners. And somebody has gone and created a route on the wall so now what they've done is they've taken these bolts that could be anywhere between like four to six inches long and they bolt them into the mountain and now you have these anchors to where you can clip your carabiner onto the wall and then you clip the other side of the carabiner to the rope and it typically involves two people you have the person who's climbing and the person who's holding the rope at the bottom which is called a belayer and there's a couple other pieces of equipment involved in making sure that the, the climber 
is attached to the belayer, but you usually have a harness that you're wearing. And then you have some pieces of metal that'll help keep the rope attached to the both of you. And from there, the person who climbs and establishes the route would be a lead climber. And the person who's gonna climb next, once the rope is at the very tip top of the climb, and that is a safer uh, mode of climbing would be top rope climbing. So I, I will say that I, I love sport climbing. I love it. And it's something I really enjoy doing. I will take bouldering whenever I get an opportunity. So traditionally, if I get a, the chance to decide which one I wanna do, I usually will do sport climbing over bouldering. And then there's a third, I guess a fourth other versions that I don't do, which is traditional climbing. And that's the old school, like you stick pieces of metal in the crack of the wall, you know, you just kind of slowly work your way up, but you're putting your own pieces of what's called protection uh, onto the wall itself. And then there's that extreme end of, uh, if you ever see that movie Free Solo, Mm -hmm. with Alex Honnold and that's free soloing where you're doing what you typically do with bouldering but in a sport or trad climbing where you're going hundreds thousands of feet in the air with no rope no protection and that is a <laughs> that's a whole uh, other mental physical you know conversation yeah that's very extreme you can just refer yes, everybody yes. to that to that movie free solo I've watched it a couple of times just because I was so impressed with Oh man, that guy is did. amazing at what he does. Yeah, there's another one called Don Wall, D-A-W-N Wall. And if you remember in the movie Free Solo, there's a guy named Tommy Caldwell, who's kind of not sure whether Alex should be doing this big climb. And he's like, well, I have a family. And he's like, I just want you to consider the, the seriousness of this. And Tommy has a story about him taking two and a half weeks to climb this wall in Yosemite. And uh, that's another movie I would recommend to just kind of get an idea of what is climbing, you know, what is what is free soloing, what is rock climbing, what is big wall climbing, where they climb thousands of feet in the air. Yeah, so uh, how do you train specifically, like if you're, do you train differently for if you do more bouldering versus if you did more um, sport climbing? Yes, and I will say this is very unique. So I think what I'm about to tell you is, is individual still. I'm still kind of trying to dabble. I, I guess my focus is really baseball when it comes to, you know, where do I lay my knowledge? but I kind of seeing what others are doing and things that I like to do and my understanding of, of uh, rehab and performance and understanding how to, how to train. I, I would say that when you are bouldering, it requires more powerful movement. So something like a deadlift, something like, you know, a squat where you're going for lower reps and lower sets and you're just trying to really gain strength is, is more a beneficial when you're doing bouldering. But at the same time, I feel like, Climbing right now is going through this transition where, you know, back in the day with running, it used to be like, well, if you want to be a better runner, you just run more, right? Like mm -hmm. that was just yeah. such a common misconception. Like, well, why do you train? Like, there's, why would you train? Why would you lift weights if you're a runner? Like, you don't want to get too big. You don't want to get too heavy because you can't run as fast. And climbing goes through somewhat of that transition where there are people who've been in the climbing scene for, you know, since the 80s who, who strength train, but it's not a common uh, approach. So when, when working with bouldering, I do think it's more powerful movements. So you should be working in, in more strength-based uh, exercises, as opposed to sport is more endurance-based, more technique-driven. And I think having a good foundation from an endurance side, so like running, I think is a good background for being able to be have the cardiovascular system, have the heart and the lungs to be able to do the sport climbing. And also, I think you are typically gonna go for longer movement. So each, uh, each I'm trying to think of the, the term, but so many movements, essentially, bouldering has so many much fewer movements. You're probably doing 20 to 40 movements. 
as opposed to sport climbing, every time you move your hand would be considered a movement. You're doing closer to 60 movements in a route. So one would be a little more endurance based and those would be more strength based. That's interesting you bring that up in comparison to running. And because as you've probably seen, maybe not so much since you're so focused on baseball, but this, this shift in the way we're approaching um, preventing injuries and also treating injuries in runners. And this whole aspect of strength training for runners is completely changed in the last, I would say as little as five years um, and how we approach the, the running athlete, whether they be professional, but typically, I mean, of course, we're working with more of the recreational runner. And now, especially with a pandemic, more everyone's a runner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Right, um, right. You're, I've, I've realized, you know, just with me working with runners, um, it's almost like, I mean, I, I kind of asked you that question to, to kind of lead you to differentiate, but it's in a sense, you almost can't necessarily say that it's better to train one way and not another, not that same way for sport climbing and bouldering. Um, I mean, you can't say that if just because you sport climb, you climb, you shouldn't deadlift heavy Absolutely. Know, or, or you shouldn't squat Absolutely. heavy. Um, you know, there's a difference in squatting heavy to just build strength versus to build hypertrophy where you are going to get a lot more weight from that muscle. So it's kind of like climbing. You don't want to get really heavy. You know, it's it, you know, neither does a runner. <laughs> but Exactly. And, right. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, you know, I can give a very specific example right now with because I'm in El Paso and there's more opportunity to be outside to boulder. Uh, I... And I can't even get, okay, I'll kind of take a, a wider view on this. I get to climb probably two months out of every year. So I go about 10 months sometimes without climbing. And I've finally reached a point, whether it's part of the technique or just the adaptations to my forearms and my hands, where I can go 10 months without climbing, kind of work my way back in, and then be at a level that I was the previous year or slightly better. And I do think that it's just through being conditioned throughout the year. So translating working out in the weight room and doing things that are cardio based, you know, conditioning based, I think helped me keep a good level of fitness that then allows me to go to the technical aspect without having lost too much. And that so, so say somebody is a weekend warrior who has quite a few busy days, but they have more access to a weight room than they do a climbing gym. I'm sure both of us know that you know, whenever you're dealing with somebody who's untrained, anything you do is going to be a stimulus to create some type of fitness. So if this person has an opportunity to go to the weight room and or go to a gym or right now during pandemic times work out at home, you know, and they don't get the opportunity to go to a rock gym or go outside, you can create a level of fitness that is going to help you. And so being here in El Paso right now and having uh, access to some so a barbell and doing some deadlifting activities, I'm currently deadlifting to try and create a little more power to then be able to translate that on that, that video on the Instagram, uh, my Instagram account where I'm trying to like hold myself up into those weight goes and trying to do this longer route. It takes a lot of like extension based glute core, you know, back to be able to kind of keep yourself pressed against the wall without kind of sagging out. So in my mind, even if I'm not, you know, the traditional sense of making my muscles bigger, I'm teaching my brain and my muscles to fire, to be able to be kind of whenever I need them to on demand, they can turn on to be able to use them when I'm bouldering. So I am using, you know, deadlifting once a week. And it's not, you know, you can argue that's not enough stimulus to create change. But it's enough for me with what I would call myself in season for climbing, 
to kind of help keep the fitness and the brain to muscle connection there to, to keep me ready to be able to do what it is I'm trying to do. Yeah. So it's almost, I mean, whether it's an endurance type sport or climb versus a power or like you could say endurance running versus sprinting or bouldering versus sport climbing, you need to incorporate heavier lifts. And, and also, you know, you, we, we talk about deadlift. I, I actually, uh, some of my patients give me a hard time for this, but I get every single one of my clients or patients deadlifting. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I've had people that have been scared to deadlift their yeah. whole life. They're a mother of two and they're in their thirties and they're like, my back hurts all the time. And they've been scared to deadlift because that motion yeah. kind of hurts. And I've taken someone within four weeks of going from barely being able to pick up a barbell from the ground to deadlifting over a hundred pounds three times. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, actually in a period of, that was recently over just two weeks. So there's something to like, I mean, I know deadlift is just something that is, um, I think misunderstood, but also like if you can go heavier than you think, like, yeah. Um, and it's a spectrum, right? I think that's another thing is if, uh, you think as, as a weekend warrior, you know, again, as doing this as a hobby and I'm not trying to lean so hard into being really good at one specific thing. And I kind of dabble in the bouldering and the sport climbing. You can think of it as same in, in the running. Like you don't, if you're going to be endurance based, doesn't mean everything you do have to be endurance based, right? There's a spectrum. And if you do some sprint workout or some technique based workout, we're sticking to running or you're doing something to some, some weightlifting, it's not going to dramatically, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be so much slower you know, if it's done correctly, it's going to actually benefit and enhance what you're doing. You want to create some movement variability, do some things outside of the directions that you're typically trying to do your sport in. So without a doubt, I think it's so important. And I think some mastering some of the basic movements like a deadlift or a squat is just good for life. And we don't realize that, you know, we're constantly fighting gravity. So at some point, there's a form of strength that's keeping us upright. And if we can continue to invest in keeping strength and getting stronger, you can just do more than just exist and right and just be upright. You can then have a life where you don't feel back pain because you are stronger and your body is working at more as a unit. And you know, a rabbit hole I won't go down is the idea of how did we exist before there were chairs and you know planes, trains, and automobiles, and that we walked a lot, we squatted a lot, we we moved, we we hunt, we gathered we'd rest and it's just such a different lifestyle that we lead now that we have to kind of keep in t in tune with the roots of, of being human. And there wasn't even a need for physical therapists until the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And so, yeah, that's a, because of all those things is kind of why you know, movement specialists exist. Um, yes. Or what are some of the typical injuries that either you've had or that you see your friends have had in, in rock climbing? Okay, so we can go, there's going to be like the traumatic route, which is going to be, you know, falls, which you hope never happen. But some things that I've seen uh, are 40 foot falls, where a guy was didn't really know where he was at. It was more of a medical emergency. He had a, uh, he had a dislocated ankle, like a tip fib, what seemed like a tip fib fracture, his foot was definitely in a different direction. And that is going to be more though, again, the more of the emergency based. And that has just driven me to actually get my EMT license for both what I do for work and just what I do outside is just something that I felt was important. And then to a sprained ankle. So a guy the other day, uh, I was watching him climb. He was bouldering. 
he was trying to do something very difficult. It was very impressive. And when he fell, the, the crash pads, sometimes you got to line them up. So they would get four by six feet foam that are, that are folded. You put them side by side, or you can kind of stack them on top of each other. But these two had just slightly shifted apart and he kind of caught his toe in between both of them and then twisted his ankle. So you'll see things like that to um, hands. So I've had a pulley injury. I think it was a A3, A4. A3 pulley injury on my pinky, my left pinky finger. And it just felt like a knuckle pop, you know, but then also my finger swelled up to, uh, I think kind of what I mentioned earlier, like this thoracic outlet type symptom, which means essentially where either your nervous, your nerves coming from your neck down to your arms or your blood flow coming from your neck down to your arms kind of get compressed. Sometimes that can be due to having, you know, an extra rib or it could be due to really tight muscles in the neck and the, the trunk of the body, kind of like your pec area under your armpit as well. And I just get these really like heavy sensations that killed me. I hated it where my hands would feel so numb and so heavy. I'd actually, after bouldering, have to sit in my car like 20 minutes. It's kind of, you know, when your arm falls asleep and you're kind of going through the phases of it waking up and you get through this like really deep ache version. That's kind of what it felt like, but on both hands and I couldn't drive. So I'd have to wait about 15, 20 minutes, kind of let it calm down. Um, and those are, and then a left shoulder injury, more along the lines of probably like a rotator cuff. So uh, infraspinatus more specifically would be, I think the muscle that gives me trouble. And that goes to the idea of, I just have to be really good at staying strong to not let these issues crop up. Yeah, I said, I said earlier that I don't, I didn't really work with rock climbers. I think I said that off air, but um, I have had one recently. Uh, there's yeah. actually a pretty cool rock climbing gym at Texas A&M in the rec center. I don't know if you've awesome. been there or seen it. No, I haven't. Um, it's right when you walk in, it's like, boom, right there in your face, uh, this huge wall. And then there's another little section, but he climbs there all the time. And then he's actually, he, right now he's probably like out in Utah or something like, <laughs> or maybe somewhere yeah. in, outside of Austin. He goes to Austin all the time um, to do a bunch of rock climbing, but he had a shoulder injury and, it's, it's something that, I mean, as, as far as talking about injuries with rock climbers is um, a lot of them, you know, they, they go to certain people to get help and they don't get help and they're told, you know, they, they may need a surgery for this. And so luckily he found me and I evaluated and I said, look, I mean, he's had, he's actually had PT before the year before. Yeah. Um, he's seen yeah. a chiropractor, different things. I think this happens to a lot of people is um, so, but specifically with him, rock climbing, shoulder pain when you have shoulder pain and you can't do a, like hold your body up or it, it hurts to reach and to pull, then obviously you can't climb. And so he came to me, he couldn't climb at all. And we, we, we were able to work through things. I think a majority of injuries that we see in rock climbing can be dealt with, with physical therapy. Um, hardly any of them, unless they're traumatic, like I'm not talking about traumatic injuries. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah right. Um, but with this shoulder, elbow, forearm, um, I mean, you probably get, you probably have experienced some tennis elbow just with the lateral elbow pain um, because of grip. But, you know, those things that once we figured out exactly what was leading to it, it was mo mostly like a rotator cuff weakness and kind of an in not, not instability, but um, unable to stabilize dynamically. And once yeah. we got him doing that, I mean, within a few weeks, he's, you know, climbing, bouldering. I think he does. They just, yeah. they've got, they're so strong in their upper body. They make it look like it's easy just to like pull themselves up on a pull up stuff like that. I had him in here doing that. And he's like, Oh yeah, I could do like 30 of these right now. You know, so, um, That's awesome. um but you're, one you're thing, right. And yeah, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you first, you first. 
No, you're good. I was going to say, uh, I think I'm very biased in saying this, but it comes down to uh, if you're active and you're a weekend warrior, you're trying to get outside, you could benefit, you know, from some type of hands-on work and some type of form of physical therapy. Again, I'm very biased and maybe that sounds mm -hmm. like very salesy, but I really do think that everyone can benefit from some type of hands-on work, uh, whether that's even massage, you know, chiropractic or physical therapy. And again, being biased, I think, you know, physical therapy is a great, uh, it's, it's a great avenue and a great resource to have as you're trying to progress through any skill that you're working through. And I absolutely do think there's a lot of, I actually have a buddy right now who climbs, who I was climbing with, who had some shoulder irritation going on and we were at, we call it a crag. So whenever you're at the place where you're climbing, you know, we were just going over reviewing some exercises and some motions to go through that he could use to kind of warm his body up, make sure that his shoulder isn't as cranky and certain movements to avoid to make sure that he's not overly stressing the shoulder to allow it to heal, but still enjoy being outside. That's awesome. Well, we need to kind of wrap it up here. I wanted to um, ask you a few questions. Um, yeah. One of the things was, I don't actually have it on there. I didn't. So this is a surprise question. Okay. Um, would, would you ever consider, have you ever thought about doing American Ninja Warrior? Yeah, actually, there's a buddy of mine who has given it three attempts, and uh, he's a physical therapist, and he has, has tried to motivate me to do it. I have thought about it, and uh, yes, the short answer is yes, I would. That'd be, it sounds like, looks like a lot of fun. And uh, you know what? Actually, I don't know if you know this, but the first person to win the American Ninja Warrior was a it called the arrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Yep, who doesn't so, who doesn't yeah. know american ninja warrior <laughs> no that guy lives so, in his yeah. van and yep exactly traveling around climbing and then he bought him a house after he won i love that <laughs> yeah so yeah absolutely that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun if i had the opportunity i would absolutely do that i think after he won he actually retired for like a year <laughs> i love that <laughs> and then awesome. and that's, then he came back very to, rock climber-esque <laughs> yeah and then he came back to ninja warrior and didn't do as well but that shows you like how much like he was 100 percent dedicated to what he was doing for years. It took years for, you know, to get to that point. But from what I've seen on stuff like that, and the reason I wanted to ask you that is because rock climbers always do really well on that show uh, because they yeah. have such good, great strength and upper body strength mm -hmm. and control, core control, because you're not using your lower body very much in those things, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, uh, the grip, like being aware of how, if you're over gripping or under gripping and knowing how much you really have to pull without getting too tired, is probably a big piece for that. Mm. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Um, so what about what's a hobby or activity or a sport that you'd like to try outside of anything you've done to this point? So it can't be anything you know, you've tried before. Nothing I've tried. What if something I've been like introduced to, but I haven't necessarily. Yeah, that's done. cool. That's cool. Okay. So actually like shooting. Uh, I have a buddy who well, my cousin's husband actually introduced me to uh, skeet shooting with a uh, mm -hmm. shotgun, which is a lot of fun. I like that. And then uh, I have a friend out in Georgia who does competitive shooting. Uh, and it just sounds really cool. I've never done that in any way, but it sounds something like I'd be really interested in That's yeah, cool. a skill that you can repeat over and over and you can just, there's some adrenaline involved in trying to like make decisions on what you're doing. So it sounds like a lot of fun. My brother got into that when he was younger. Um, and he actually really? got to do some training with this, with a world champion skeet shooter. At, and it was his, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Um, wow. so he got into it he still has his gun but he doesn't do any skeet shooting and then i've recently um last year i treated an archer like and he was like a young teenage archer and he was doing these high level competitions of archery i mean and so i got to learn a little bit about the technique of all that and how it relates to other things that i've seen and treated that was pretty cool 
That's really cool. I think it just has the roots and again, doing things that we have always done. And it'd be cool to kind of go back and revisit some of that. All right. So if you could do anything else besides being an awesome PT, what else, what would you do? Well, I appreciate you calling me awesome, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I think it would be probably something outside. So whether that be like a adventure guide or doing some backcountry medicine, or also again, just trying to take people. So there's a, there's a video series called real rock R E E L. And they most recently had one where they took a bunch of kids from Memphis, from South Memphis in this uh, nonprofit climbing gym. They took them out ice climbing out in Montana. Hmm. And I think again, taking people who have no exposure experience to hiking and being outside and people who maybe who have be like at risk and showing them how you can improve your life and kind of learn some life skills through being outside and kind of facing some hardship, some voluntary hardship. So something around those lines would be something I'd be interested in. That's very cool. I, I'm not surprised that you said that, you know, something, <laughs> something adventure outside, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So what's the best advice you could give someone that is wanting to be more active that is not I, active or is a little bit active and wants to be more active? I would say find something that you, that you find interesting or fun. You know, I think we, we know that exercise doesn't always have to be with a weight or in a running form, you know, getting outside, just whether that's going out and hiking, walking around the lake, doing something that's fun and doing it with others. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a big piece is just finding a group of people who you would be enjoy being around who are active and just, just doing something like that. It was just a, a quick side story. You know, my mom's slowly gone into walking and then from walking led into hiking. And then she, I'm very proud of what she's done. And, you know, she's now out here in El Paso in the Franklin mountains, you know, hiking all the time and showing me all sorts of hikes that I'd never seen before. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And I'm the one trying mm -hmm. to tell her like, Hey, make sure to pack enough, you know, water and snacks and such uh, things that she'd always tell me. But it was, I think that what I've noticed is just finding something that you really like to do with people who you really enjoy doing it with and just slowly just taking your time to kind of do more of that. Get outside, turn off the phone, turn off the computer, you know, turn off the, the TV and just find something that, that gets you outside or that gets you active. I think that's great. Finding something you enjoy doing, but also finding other people that enjoy doing it and surrounding yeah. yourself with them. That helps a lot because you can only go so far with by yourself with something that you like to do. But I've definitely found as soon as you surround yourself with people that are also enjoying doing that, then that's what's going to take you kind of the next level and get you really habitual where you're yes. habitually being active. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So just the final thing to wrap things up, um, I already mentioned earlier where people can find you, but maybe mention it again. If people want to connect with you, kind of see what you're doing, climbing in the climbing world, or even um, we could... Uh, if any PT students wanted to connect with you, reach out to you, uh, pick your brain, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thanks Brian for having me. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate this. It's, it's really cool to see somebody covering over, you know, what Texans are up to. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm very proud to be from Texas. It's a lot of fun. And uh, on the socials, it'll be Instagram is climb Nick climb. And then on Twitter, it's uh, Nick V underscore PT and you know of course if they reach out to you or reach out to your podcast um, i'm always happy to just help as best i can uh, anybody whether that's a pt student or you know somebody who's trying to get into climbing or just has you know just general questions but i love being able to to help so please you know anybody out there just don't hesitate to reach out okay awesome yeah we'll put this in the show notes we'll have to share this with everybody we think that will benefit from it yes um, definitely th this has been a blast talking to you i mean we're 
we could go a lot of different directions, I think. And it's yeah, always, really it's always fun talking to another healthcare professional, especially a physical therapist, um, because I'm also a little biased towards physical therapists. And I know that we can help yeah. a lot of people. And hopefully this, you know, we can keep doing that in our careers. We're both pretty young in our careers. And I'm excited to kind of see where you go and take it in the future. Same. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. It's been fun being able to to bring in, you know, what I love in the hobby and climbing and be able to also talk about, uh, you know, that the life of physical therapist. So I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. All right. Take care. For more information about College Station Physical Therapy and Performance, please visit our website at collegestationpt.com or check us out on Facebook at College Station Physical Therapy and Performance or on Instagram at College Station PT. That's it for today. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody, to The Active Texan.